What is your hope? This morning, my hope is that the tech will work. <laughs> Sorry, I'll try to tilt this a little bit more. Um, I really like that last song because uh, it talks about, you know, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit. And what I want to talk today about has to do with all three persons of the Trinity. But I want to start today by presupposing that we all know something. Essentially, I believe that everyone here or online understands that at the most basic level, what's at stake in the Christian experience is salvation. Now, salvation has to do with being saved. And if you think about it for a minute, being saved implies two realities. First, what you're being saved from, and second, what you're being saved to. For example, you may be saved from a sinking ship, but what that implies is that you're being saved to one that's floating. Salvation for Christians can be understood in the same way. Now, to be fair, Christians have some different opinions about how that salvation gets worked out. In fact, depending on what church or denomination you grew up in or who it is that introduced you to faith, you may have learned about the idea of Christian salvation with different types of emphases on what it means. As a result, when it comes to your understanding of Christian salvation, the emphasis may be slightly different from the person across the aisle or even the person sitting next to you. For some, the emphasis is on Jesus' death as a payment for a debt owed to God because of our sin. For others, it's on Jesus taking our place, acting as a substitute in the face of God's judgment of our sin. For still others, the emphasis is on Jesus' victory over sin and death, by which he reverses the curse of sin and thereby sets us free from it. There are other views besides these. And perhaps each view is just describing a part of the whole picture of salvation. But there is one thing that all of them have in common. In each case, what we're being saved from is something the Bible calls hell. Now, today is not about hell, thankfully. But I think everyone here would agree that regardless of what tradition has informed your understanding of it, and even if you're not sure you believe in it, you wouldn't want to go there. Let me reiterate, if hell is real, and if you're going somewhere for all eternity, most people tend to agree that they don't want to end up there. Now, over the centuries, the church has gotten pretty good at converting people to faith with what I would call a hell avoidance theology. Essentially, the message is this. You need to become a Christian so that you don't go to hell. To become a Christian, you need to be saved. And believing in Jesus is the only way to get saved, regardless of how you define it. And all of that is true. And if you take nothing else away from my message today, please hear this. Belief in Jesus 
and submission to his authority as Lord over your life is the most important thing. And Jesus is the only way to be saved. And that's it, right? That's the gospel message. We're all done. Time for coffee. Well, hang on a minute. Remember what we started out by saying about salvation. Salvation implies two realities. First, what you're being saved from. And second, what you're being saved to. Where we as Christians and as the church have gotten really good at talking about the first reality, about being saved from hell, we're not so good at talking about the second reality, the part about what it is that we're being saved to. We don't talk enough about heaven. Let's look at an instruction that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, gave to the early church and see how we can apply it here. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Do you see the word hope about halfway through the verse? Peter's instruction to believers is to always be ready to explain their hope. The problem is that many believers have been conditioned to frame that explanation around the first reality of salvation. They tend to communicate their hope in terms of what they've been saved from. But Peter's audience, although they had been saved from hell spiritually, were still living through many worldly trials. These Christians were disenfranchised, marginalized members of society. And they lived on the lowest rungs of the social ladder in an increasingly hostile Roman Empire. Into this reality, Peter writes to them in order to encourage them in their present situation. He does this by reminding them that they have a hope. Merriam-Webster defines the word hope as desire accompanied by expectation of or belief in fulfillment. This definition is appropriate for believers because what we hope for, what we have an expectation of, and indeed what we are assured of in Christ Jesus is this concept of salvation. Salvation from hell, certainly, but also salvation to something called heaven. Heaven is meant to be that which we desire, which we yearn for with great expectation, and which is better by far than our current situation. But is that how you see heaven? What does your picture of heaven look like? And how would you describe your eternal hope to someone else? There's a pretty good chance that if you're not a Christian, your picture of heaven might look like this. Or this. But it's also possible that if you are a Christian, at least in North America, these images may reflect the extent of your knowledge of that which you hope for. Randy Alcorn, pastor and founder of Eternal Perspective Ministries, has written a book simply called Heaven, 
In it, he talks about this very fact. He reflects on how one pastor shared with him that his picture of heaven looked just like this. That pastor concluded that he would rather be annihilated than spend all of eternity like that. Alcorn then laments that many, for many Christians, their concept of heaven is a never-ending church service in the sky. Randy suggests that this misconception of our hope is the product of a lack of teaching about heaven coupled with the influence of pop culture. Take this example from Huckleberry Finn. She went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. Huck Finn, like many others, just wasn't impressed by this portrayal of heaven. So why aren't we talking about heaven in more meaningful ways? Why don't we dial in on the specifics of that which is meant to be our heart's desire? That which we ought to anticipate with great expectation. I think it's partly because of circumstances. Remember what I said about the church Peter wrote to? These Christians lacked social status, legal protections, and religious freedoms. Based on when we believe Peter wrote this letter, it wouldn't be long before these Christians started to lose their lives for their faith. In the West, we simply haven't faced those kinds of trials. There's just no meaningful comparison today. In the absence of such circumstances, the church today has had to place more emphasis on the spiritual reality of salvation to communicate the gospel. We have focused on salvation from the spiritual reality of hell. And we have spiritualized our heavenly hope as well. This has come, however, at the expense of a concrete and relatable vision of that hope. There's another reason I think we don't talk about heaven much, and it's the Bible itself. Don't get me wrong, it's not that the Bible doesn't talk about heaven, because it does. The problem is that the Bible tends to use language and imagery that is just hard to make sense of, and many church leaders shy away from unpacking it. I believe this is because they are afraid of getting it wrong or not doing it justice. Even as I was preparing for this message, which I'm convinced is something God wants us to talk about, I was struck with how underqualified I feel to talk about it. Indeed, there is a significant limitation in making sense of the Bible's language and imagery, and it is our finite ability to understand it. As the Apostle Paul says, No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, His plan that was previously hidden, even though He made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the Scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. 
For this reason, in our humanity, we lack the capacity to understand the reality of heaven in its fullness. And so God uses language and imagery in his word that gives us a glimpse of heaven. Through scripture, we get to peek behind the curtain to see through the glass darkly some of our heavenly hope. Some of what we are shown is concrete, like the description of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. These descriptions show us that heaven is something tangible. It's real. The Apostle John saw it in his vision, and he took measurements. But we shouldn't assume that what John was shown is the whole picture. That's why we're also given images which are full of mystery in order to spark our imaginations and to remind us that we can't put heaven in a box of human logic. In both respects, the concrete and the mysterious, we're being given only a taste of the greater reality which God has in store for us. Like when we give an infant baby food so when they get their teeth and they start to eat whole foods, the tastes will already be familiar to them. Paul goes on to say that the reason Christians can even begin to understand these mysteries is because of God's presence in us by the Holy Spirit. But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. Paul says that it's because of the spirit that we can understand scripture and thus begin to catch these glimpses of heaven through his word. The Spirit allows us to know some things about heaven with certainty, but the Spirit also allows us to imagine and explore what heaven might be like. Now, before we get to heaven, I want to talk a little bit more about why it's so important that we start talking about heaven. To do that, I want to go back to our conversation about salvation and look at why it matters that we communicate our hope in terms of being saved from something, but also to something. The reason why it matters is that only talking about one or the other reality and not both is that when we do that, both realities can be too easily dismissed. Let me try an analogy. Sometimes when you get sick, you take medicine to get better. Sometimes medicine tastes awful, but we take it anyway because we have hope that it will make us better. We desire with expectation of fulfillment that the medicine prescribed will restore us to health. Now, we won't take medicine if we don't think we're sick, and if we are sick, we won't take medicine that we don't have hope will make us better. So church, when we tell someone that they're suffering from a terminal illness called sin, 
and that the only cure is to be found in the complete surrender of all of their lives to Jesus. And we leave out the details about where that leads and why it's better by far than their current situation? Is it any wonder that many people simply respond with indifference? After all, if this life is all there is, and if there's no future hope to be desired, then why not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? What's more, if there's no heaven, there's probably no hell. In which case, everyone should just do whatever feels good. The result of which is a society where truth and morality are matters of opinion. Does that sound familiar? But let's be honest. This is a reality within the church also. So many Christians, especially in North America, struggle with this idea of complete surrender precisely because they do not have an eternal perspective. As a result, they look around at what the world has to offer and they suffer from the fear of missing out. On the other hand, when we have a complete picture of our salvation, which includes that part of our hope which is heaven, we can find the motivation to live differently in the world. It's what allows Christians to grieve differently, love selflessly, give sacrificially, choose to spend their resources differently, and to live according to different values and priorities than the world around us. Christians also endure hardship differently. And it's the reason Peter gave the early church this instruction. He expected them to be able to endure their hardships because of their hope. Their hope would prevent them from despairing and would even allow them to thrive and have joy in the midst of their circumstances. What's more, all of this would serve as a witness to their faith, helping to advance the gospel. Joni Erickson Tada is a well-known Christian artist, speaker, author, and the founder of Joni and Friends Ministries. Joni also knows what it's like to despair. Joni is a quadriplegic, which means she's paralyzed from the neck down. Joni wrote a book called Heaven, Your Real Home. And in it, she talks about those times when she's wanted to quit because of her disability. Those times when she's fed up with her limitations and when she's had to contend with the incredible emotional, mental, and physical frustration that they cause. She goes on to share that in those times, she rallies herself to continue in God's service by lifting her eyes and her heart to the promises of heaven. And she finds there the capacity to not only continue serving, but also to thrive. She, like the Apostle Peter, also understands that this response is a part of her Christian witness. She knows that it matters how we as Christians respond to the trials and temptations of this world because it's what sets us apart from it. When Christians live their lives out of an eternal 
perspective, the world stands back in awe. It also witnesses to other believers how Joni perseveres in the midst of her circumstances strengthens the faith of fellow Christians who may never have to face those types of challenges in their own lives. I also mentioned that when we have an eternal perspective, we live by different values and we have different priorities. Let me offer a personal anecdote about that. My extremely patient and loving wife desires to travel the world. And whenever she brings it up, I tell her that we don't need to go see places like London or Paris because when we get to heaven, we'll get to see them in their perfected glory for free. <laughs> of course, I'm joking and I'm cheap. And honestly, I would love to travel the world with my wife and see places like London and Paris. And God willing, we'll get that chance. But I'm also not going to stress about it, and I'm not going to strive after it. If I miss out, <clears throat> I know that I won't regret it when I'm standing in heaven face to face with the splendor of the new creation. Having an eternal perspective allows me to be at peace with what I lack rather than being disappointed by it or somehow unfulfilled by it or because of it. This flies in the face of worldly wisdom which suggests that a life without regret is one in which we satisfy our every desire. Believers shouldn't buy into the wisdom of the world. Instead, they should be able to live without regrets because they live with the expectation of fulfillment of the only desire that really matters, eternal life with Jesus in heaven. So what do we know about heaven? What can we expect? What can we get excited about? Well, for starters, I don't think we'll be floating around on clouds, strumming harps, and wishing we'd brought a magazine. In Revelation 21.1, we read, <clears throat> Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This tells me that this wonderful blue marble that God created to be our home will be recreated and will serve as our home in eternity. Notice, too, that there will no longer be any sea. The image of the sea was for Israel a symbol of evil, chaos, and separation. The absence of the sea here emphasizes that there will no longer be a physical or spiritual separation between us and heaven. As such, we will have bodies perfectly suited to both earth and heaven. Bodies that, just like Christ's resurrected body, can eat, drink, and walk along the road. While also being able to suddenly appear and disappear from a locked upper room. You can read about those things in Luke chapter 24 and John chapter 20. 
I'm also convinced that I will still be me in eternity, and you will still be you. There will be continuity between the old body and the new. Different, yes, but also the same, only better. The Apostle Paul anticipates that this question would arise, and so he writes. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. Perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Paul is saying that our new bodies will be the fullness of all the potential which existed in our current ones from creation. If you plant me in the ground like a seed, what will grow is still going to be me. It's just going to be so much more than what the seed was. We will also still know each other in heaven. Jesus knew his disciples after the resurrection and was known by them. Their relationships remained intact, and Jesus understood their history together, and he took the time to heal their hurts and to help them make sense of all that had happened. And so I have confidence that beyond just our physical bodies, what makes you, you, and me, me, will still be part of who we are in eternity. Not only will we have bodies like Christ, but we will also have minds like his. God says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. No longer will we injure ourselves and others with words and actions born out of the desires of our sinful nature and tainted by our selfishness and pride. Instead, we will live in perfect relationship to one another. Can you imagine it? We will also have things to do in heaven. Just as God created man in the beginning with a mandate to rule over and care for, and yes, even to enjoy his creation, we shall have the same mandate over the new creation with Jesus. And so I have confidence that we will still shape and cultivate the world around us. Builders will build, artists will produce art, farmers will tend crops, I'll get to go camping, and Pastor Mike will play golf, only he'll be good at it. And yes, sorry, Mike. <laughs> and yes, we will worship God, but not in a never-ending church service in the sky, as we talked about earlier. Rather, we will worship as a state of being. Worship will be the canvas on which we live. It will permeate and support everything else that we do in eternity. When we live and move as we were created to, according to his good and perfect will, we will be worshiping him every step of the way. Every action, every thought, glorifying God, and in its essence, worshipful. This is what I'm confident of. And there's lots more to get excited about, but... Today, I'm just trying to whet your appetite. 
If you want to explore more of this part of our hope, you can read Randy's book or Joni's book. There are others, like C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. You can probably find more resources in our library. And Randy's got a video series on Right Now Media based on this book called Eternity 101, which you can take a look at. But I want to encourage you to investigate further. Spend time in God's Word. Ask God's Spirit to reveal to you a vision of heaven. Most importantly, be prepared to tell anyone who asks about your hope the whole story of your salvation. Amen. Of all the fears that grip our hearts, no fear is greater than the fear of death. There are those who will tell you that death is a natural part of life. But if death is just a part of life, then why does it cause us such anger and sorrow? When God created humanity, he intended for us to grow more and more beautiful over time. But in one tragic moment, we unleashed sin into the world, and everything broke, including our bodies. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and it fills God's heart with anger and sorrow even more than it does ours, because death was not a part of God's original plan. The Bible says that when Jesus approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he quaked with rage, and his eyes filled with tears. He was overwhelmed by the suffering caused by death, a curse we had brought upon ourselves. Death's curse was physical. Both the world and our bodies were decaying. But death's curse was also spiritual, eternally separating humanity from their creator, the source of all light, love, and life. But because of God's amazing love, he chose to surrender all power and glory to rescue us from death. Jesus, God's only Son, was expelled from the presence of the Father and thrust into complete darkness in our place. He took humanity's curse upon himself, breaking death's grip on us and purchasing humanity a place at the Father's side forever. A day is coming when the true King will return at last to restore the world to its full glory and us with it, renewing both soul and body. You'll still be yourself, but even more so. You'll finally be the real you. On that day, we'll look at each other and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses of the real you, flashes of it, and now here you are. Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal one. You're not going to float through the clouds. You're going to walk. You're going to eat. You're going to laugh. You're going to hug. You're going to sing in realms and degrees of power and joy that you cannot now imagine. Some will tell you not to fear death because it's part of life. But Jesus says not to fear death 
because it's been defeated. And the day will come when Jesus embraces you with his nail-scarred hands and says, Welcome home. I have so much to show you. <laughs>